Gary DePaul with Unlabeled Leadership. Welcome to episode 75, Phyllis Milliken Taps into the Wisdom of Teams. Here's a shout out to listeners in Wisconsin and some of the cities that have listeners are Appleton, Brookville, Hartford, Madison, of course, Milwaukee, where I lived for a year, and Oak Creek. With that, let's get started. In my book, Nine Practices of 21st Century Leadership, I identified 13 traditional leadership assumptions. These assumptions are harmful and can really hurt productivity. In episode 65, Dave Best responds to three of these assumptions, and in this episode, Phyllis Milliken, who's been on the show before, responds to another three. Phyllis is an executive vice president with a company called Sure People, which offers a talent management platform that does more than just talent management. Way before her days at Sure People, Phyllis and I worked at Arthur Anderson at their International Training Center. Since working there, we periodically kept in touch, and I've invited her on the show a couple of times. Phyllis has a deep understanding about leadership. Part of this is due to her training, what she's read on her own, and it's also due to her research on leadership as well as her experiences. Part 1. Do Leaders Need Authority? The first traditional leadership assumption I write about is called Leaders Need Authority. And this is something that anyone can fall trapped to. After graduate school, I worked for Arthur Anderson, and they expected me to work with some of the managing partners of the firm. Back then, I had trouble just with the concept of working with the managing partner. I mean, here I was, a senior instructional designer, and I thought, why would someone like this listen to me? Well, I found out pretty quickly that I was wrong. I ended up having really good relationships with the managing partners that I worked with and partnered with, and it was actually a really good experience working with them. Phyllis responds to this leaders need authority assumption, and, well, I'll let her talk about it. Here's Phyllis. Do you have to have authority to lead? I don't believe so. So I, I think that the assumption is not necessarily based in, in the reality. Yeah. My personal point of view is there are individuals that have often had nobody reporting to them, but our leaders within an organization. And it really is primarily due to the skills that they're bringing, the way in which they behave and an earned respect. When that dynamic occurs, individuals follow. They have a tendency of looking to that individual for guidance and for leadership. I think those that believe that they need authority and have that assumption, my personal experiences are there's something else that's happening that's leading to that. For example, if an organization is very hierarchical, then there's a tendency to believe you need that authority Yeah, because of that hierarchy. That's the norm at that organization. Even in those situations, the differences that I see in leaders that actually rely on that authority versus those that lead is really dramatically different. For example, and this is something I've been doing a lot of, just because of the organization I work and where we're focused, I've been doing a lot of research and what I find, and when I was looking at leaders need authority and then some of the implications that you had in your book, Gary, 
One of the other implications is the behavior. When you're behaving in a way where you're asserting authority, those types of behaviors actually lead to burnout and they lead to the lack of engagement and they lead to decreases in productivity and decreases in innovation. Because when you stifle the organization, when you disable individuals from contributing because you're not asking for input, that essentially leads to negative implications for the organization holistically. There's a curious phenomenon that I've discovered. I've recently talked to someone who worked in the organization as an AVP. I won't say which one. In the organization, the chief HR officer hires a lot of people with PhDs, wants the smartest and brightest. And when he's in a meeting and he has his PhDs with him, he shows to the business, I have all these really smart people. But what I found from this colleague of mine is that the chief HR officer makes all the decisions. Once you're in the organization and you're hired for your brilliance, your insight, your ability to create and innovate. He doesn't want you to do any of those things. He wants you to do what he wants you to do and limits your contribution other than following orders. Yeah. And that's incredibly demotivating. Yeah. When you're hiring individuals and essentially not enabling them, empowering them to contribute, you diminish their value. Even if that's not your intention, you're diminishing their value within that organization. And that's really demotivating. There's so much research behind this scary. There's so many different areas that have really dug into this. Mayo Clinic did a study. Stanford did a study. There's been a lot of research around psychological safety and the underpinnings of really the most successful leaders are all anchored in creating psychological safety and having and or growing, right? Emotional intelligence and being very self-aware having that ability to relate to others and then really understand the dynamics between team members so that you can foster those relationships and you can foster the ability to actually recognize the differences and the value of the differences of the team members, what they bring. And that generates the innovation and generates productivity, generates the engagement. When leaders simply dictate, all they'll get is a reflection back of themselves. So they actually limit the possibilities. How would you describe psychological safety if you're going to explain it to someone? The way I would describe psychological safety, although this might be jumping ahead a little bit, but it is creating an environment where it is okay to share. It's okay to fail. It's okay to offer ideas that are not exactly in alignment with maybe what that leader sort of challenge ideas and that be okay. So you're creating an environment where there is genuine safety. There's not this punitive aspect of if you don't agree with me, there will be a consequence. If you are not 100% successful 100% of the time, there's going to be a negative consequence. You essentially create a safety net for the individuals on your team to really perform. And sometimes that performance does mean failure and that's okay. And the reason it's okay is so we can learn from it, so we can adjust from it. That, for me, is what describes psychological safety. You shouldn't be afraid to tell your boss, this isn't working out the way I had thought it was going to work out, or I'm not able to get all the way there. 
it's not a fear-based discussion. It's a discussion where, hey, I'm not able to get all the way there. And then it becomes, okay, let's figure this out. And there's somebody there with you problem solving side by side versus having somebody that you're kind of bracing yourself for the consequence. When you experience mistakes, failures, you offer ideas, and there's no negative consequence. There's nothing that is held against you. But instead, when you're appreciated for trying, for offering new ideas that are different and innovative, then that seems to encourage, if what I've read in the research on psychological safety, it seems to encourage people to do even more innovative and creative and ideas and taking risks. Exactly. And you're also creating opportunities to coach. Ah, yeah. If you stifle the conversation, you are also removing the opportunity to provide coaching and feedback and guidance. You are missing teaching moments. I would even suspect that if you're in an environment that is very authoritative, that discourages any type of psychological safety, as as we described it just now, there's a tendency to cover your mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. You won't admit it. You won't admit it. It also, you know, and this is something I've actually observed. It also creates the sense of deflection. It becomes about blaming others. If there's no negative consequence for making the mistake, you're, you're more likely to admit it. If there's a consequence every time you make an error, then you are likely to not, not want to be accountable for that error. Yeah. I think accountability is a big part of that. When you try to be accountable and it's held against you, and if you're in that type of environment and it's repeated over and over again, then there's a tendency to where you don't want to be accountable. Correct. Yep. You're incenting poor behavior. You're incenting individuals to blame each other because no one was going to want to bear the brunt of that consequence. The other thing, and so in an organization that I've worked at, When I first joined the organization, what I found was that there just wasn't a lot of dialogue. I personally have a, my style is to say, okay, let's talk about it. I want to hear, like, I want to hear everything. Challenge me. No one is ever going to get penalized by me for challenging me. I want to know because the sum of our ideas is much better than a single idea. When I state that, I also say, now, just for the record, just because you're giving me your idea doesn't mean I'm going to act on every idea. But if I don't, I'll explain to you why. I will give you the rationale behind you know, what I may have leveraged or what may not have been leveraged and the reason why, some broader context, but I want to hear it all. And I was really you know, initially kind of struggling to get the team to share with me what I started to peel back, but it took time and it took creating a trusting and truly that psychologically safe space. So once the team members started to realize that, I was genuine. It started to open up more, right? I started actually getting more ideas. As that began to occur, what was being shared with me is, you know, hey, this was punitive before. So there was an environment where even if asked for input, there wasn't a genuine desire for input that was different than the direction that had already been established. Sort of like my door is always open, but you walked in my door. I'm offended, you know? Right. 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 So they just, you know, they, and I don't blame them, but they didn't believe it. Yeah. Right. And so until they began to really recognize that it was truthful, that there wasn't a consequence, that we actually did have that dialogue, then ideas began flowing. And there was a really significant shift in the dynamic of the team, engagement increased, 
it was dramatically, dramatically different. But there was a little bit of PTSD yeah, yeah. that had been occurring with the team. That has a significant impact on the organization. It was interesting because, you know, when I when I joined, they're like, we really want to innovate. We really want to innovate. We really want to innovate. And that was more in theory than in reality. There was a bit of a criticism of the lack of innovation. And I don't know that there was necessarily recognition that that was the environment that was created. Like you were saying before, it took time to overcome those assumptions that people are making. The crucial moments are when, for the first time, someone comes up to you and either says, I disagree, or says, the project we're doing, we have a problem, it's not working out. How you react is so crucial because you determine and you set the tone for future engagement with people and their willingness to disagree or point out when things are not working well. Exactly. Exactly. And then the other thing that happens is people just operate under the radar. They're not even necessarily doing what the organization wants them to do. Uh, They just have learned how to not be exposed. You know, if you're going to get penalized, if you're going to object to anything, you are going to ensure that on the surface, you're a good corporate citizen. And I'm, and I am using like the, the air bunny quotes right now, you know, like the good corporate citizen, which to me is you're a, uh, it's like an empty shell of a person that shows up every day. What you perceive is not really genuine to what the person's thinking and what they're trying to do, right? Right, right. And they're just punching a clock. You don't want anything more. So when you're leading in that manner, the message that you're giving people is just punch the clock and do what I say. Yes. Don't put any extra in. We don't want you to ruffle things. And those are some of the unintended consequences of that type of an operation, right? That type of a assumption. Liz Weisman describes that when people stay and they operate under the radar, so to speak, they just punch in, do their time, like punching on a clock. Then you have what she describes as the walking dead, the zombies, Yeah, you know, and they're not contributing 100%. And it's worse than having them stay on functioning that way than is if they left. Right, right. When there is that environment where, look, you know, I am the one in authority. I am the one that's making the decisions. What's the point of contributing? Part two, heroes and legacies. The next traditional leadership assumption that Phyllis and I take on is entitled, leaders are heroes who leave a legacy. As you might expect, Phyllis finds some exception to this particular assumption. Here's Phyllis to explain. Leaders that want to leave a legacy, I don't know that they all need to be heroes, right? And so I was actually, when I saw the statement, so leaders are heroes who leave a legacy. I think the leaders that are heroes, I'm going to come in and save the day is the portion of this that I think is the most concerning, honestly, as an assumption. And really, the biggest concern for me when I see that is going back to the previous section, you are disabling people from learning, right? You are disabling individuals from contributing. You're not empowering folks. The biggest issue that we have with many, many, many employers right now, and if you look at the recent studies, one of the top concerns among CEOs is the lack of a leadership bench. Now, if you've got leaders that are behaving as heroes, they are not deepening their bench. 
they are not creating that next generation of leaders. They are not empowering their employees to fail. And that's how you learn. They are not creating those developmental opportunities that are in practice. They might be in theory, but not in practice. There's also this misconception that people need rescuing. Mm, Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Analogies that I was kind of thinking about like, okay, now if the boat's actually sinking and you're acting as a hero, the likelihood is it's going to sink. Why? Because you're doing everything. Instead of empowering your team to contribute, go grab the buckets. Who knows how to fix whatever's causing that boat to sink? On the flip side of that, you're also missing the opportunity. So like if you use the same boat analogy and we're in a race, you know, you want to beat your competition, you need everyone to pick up an oar. You need everyone to contribute to win that race. You can't do it alone. So this hero concept also, I think, leads to lack of achievement, lack of really getting that organization to where they would like to be. And they could have gone further if they actually leveraged the talents within their organization. That makes perfect sense. If you and I were on the same team, and if you were the one who was just deciding what the purpose is, how we're going to do things, then me and and the other people, we wouldn't be able to provide a different perspective or provide some other things to consider. Not saying that you're like that at all, but <laughs> it's, you know, it, it is very limiting on what you can accomplish if everyone is not allowed to make a contribution and learn from their perspective that should be unique. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this concept of, you know, like if you're the hero, you're smarter than everybody else. You yeah. really, that to me is associated with you're, you're no longer learning. So you're actually stifling yourself with that assumption. You're limiting your own development by thinking you can't learn from your team members. You know, I personally try to hire in diversity of thinking. And, you know, depending on the the type of team that I'm leading, I also look for individuals that have strengths where I know I don't creating that self-awareness. So it's not about being smarter. It's just where do you leverage the strengths and how do you shore up strengths with diversity? When you first started talking about this, you're talking about that if you want to leave a legacy, you you don't necessarily have to think of yourself as a hero or try to act as a hero. And I was thinking about that when you said that, I was was thinking that just by modeling leadership behaviors, in a sense, you're going to leave some type of impression on the people around you, sort of like leaving a legacy. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I personally take great pride in is individuals that I've coached and mentored that have gone on to be really, really successful. They are CHROs in organizations. They're doing some really, really great work. I take pride in that. I think a legacy to me is you're leaving those that you encountered or that organization better than when you arrived, not entirely on your shoulders. Part three, does intimacy weaken leadership? The third assumption that Phyllis and I discuss is entitled, Intimacy Weakens Leadership. Intimacy means close familiarity or friendship. Weakness involves the lack of power to perform. The assumption is that leaders cannot be friends with team members or anyone who reports to them. The underlying belief is that you cannot discipline or you would have difficulty disciplining someone who you have a friendship with. 
Phyllis lets you know what she thinks about this assumption. Here's Phyllis. This is one of those where I just, I 100% disagree. I really think this is rooted in insecurity. That mentality, like, can't expose your Achilles heel because then someone will attack it. And I personally view the intimacy, the vulnerability when shared as a strength. It's you're confident enough in your own capabilities that you're okay to share that and not working off of this assumption that when you share it, that it will be immediate reason for attack. I mean, that really then focuses on a negative, really dark aspect of the people that you're working with, like that they would do that versus that they would actually respect it, that they would appreciate it, that they might see themselves in some aspect of that. They can more closely relate to you. And it really is a bridge to relationships. And when you strengthen relationships on multiple levels, you are actually increasing the effectiveness of the manner in which you're communicating with individuals. You are enabling the ability to inspire. And without some level of intimacy, I don't know that you really can inspire. Like when you think of all of the public speakers out there, right? Mm. Those motivational speakers. It's almost all rooted in a story in which they are exposing a struggle. They are exposing their weakness and how they dealt with it. By sharing, when you have a weakness with the people you work with, you're in a sense giving them permission to do likewise, to be open about their limitations. And Terrell Turner was on a previous episode, episode uh, 54, and he talked about this from a project management perspective. He missed a deadline. He could have done the work late at night and no one would notice the next day, but the next day he he walked in and told everyone, I missed my deadline. I did get the work done, but I did not do it when I said I would have it done. And that changed the whole dynamic of the team. They were much more open and honest and willing to help one another. When he did that, it triggered a whole different mindset for the people he worked with. Exactly. Exactly. We, when we were talking about psychological safety, I mean, I, I genuinely feel like this is one of those that's really rooted in psychological safety and where as a leader, if you're confident in enough in yourself, all parts of it, and it's a, you know, you have that self-love not to be hokey, right? Yeah. Then you're able to say, Hey, you know what? This is an area that I excel, uh, that I excel in. I need your help. Gary, I, I personally, if I really need to be in the weeds, I will be in the weeds. It's not my natural go-to place. And if I'm there for too long, I get really personally demotivated. And then I, and I just miss things then. Cause I just get like, I just, I get, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. When you get caught up in all the details, it's very easy. I know for me to become overwhelmed. Yeah. Almost paralyzed because there's so much to do. Yeah. And I just get impatient with it, right? I get impatient with it. So then I, I start to move a little bit faster and then I miss things. And I know that about myself. Whenever I am working on something that I know requires, there's a large amount of detail and it's for a sustained period, you know, that combination of things. I'm always looking to partner with others that that's their strength, right? They're going to like, they like that. And so why not leverage a strength in, in another individual? where it actually provides them with energy versus invest probably more time than I should in a less effective way with a less than desirable outcome. But that means saying, hey, you know what? I'm not great at that. Can you help me out? Just having that ability. And then it does create an openness. It's, it creates safety in, 
individuals coming to you saying, Hey, you might've missed that. Or did you think about that? And, and I'm, I'm like, Hey, thank you. Great catch. I appreciate that. But that requires that level, making people feel safe saying, um, I think that might be a mistake. And I'd rather be told, right. We are all working in the same place. We are all working towards the same end. And sometimes I think we forget that. And we just think about us as an individual and protecting ourselves. Earlier, you described starting at an organization where there was limited to no psychological safety, where people were cautious to develop that psychological safety. It really starts with you and modeling that behavior. And the Kuz's imposter in their leadership challenge, they say the leader goes first. Yeah, absolutely. To make a presumption that an environment of psychological safety is going to exist if you are not behaving in a way that, you know, you're willing to share some vulnerabilities, you're willing to connect and expose some things that are not always pretty. It's just not realistic, right? Because if you're not doing it, others aren't going to do it. Exactly. My thanks to Phyllis Milliken. If you'd like to learn more about Phyllis, go to the show notes. And if you have a question or comment, go to unlabelleadership.com, click the message icon, and you can leave a voicemail message up to one minute. I'd like to thank those who contribute to the show. Your contribution makes a difference because this is a volunteer service. Lastly, I'd like to thank you for listening. Until next time, lead on.